0: Welcome to Pocket Dilemmas, our podcast where we discuss political and economic questions facing the world today. I'm Jonathan Charles, and Kerry Law is also here, as always, helping us to solve our dilemma today. As the coronavirus impact on the global economy is becoming less and less predictable, the world is grappling with the mediation efforts, trying to work out what to do. We know a massive change is coming, but we don't know quite what it is. Some call this an opportunity to bring social, environmental impact investing into the spotlight of the new global economic order. Is this possible? What does COVID-19 mean for impact investing? And can we make investing for good a new normal?
1: What are pocket dilemmas?
2: Are algorithms
0: biased? Will
1: robots take away your job? Do you
2: trust cryptocurrencies? How do we
1: bridge the pay gap? What
2: is the future of poverty?
1: This is Dilemmas at EBRD.com. Here's a good news story. What is good for people and the planet also appears to be unambiguously good for emerging market investors. On average, investors who put money into smoke-belching state-owned companies that ignore labor rights and shun transparency do worse than counterparts who are more observant of ethical standards. This is shown by the so-called ESG stock indices. That is, indices comprised of companies that observe environmental, social, and governance standards. These have performed handsomely in recent years.
2: So in 2017, the FT did this short explainer to highlight the investments that are really taking off. And James Kinge, who's the FT Emerging Markets Editor, here explained how ethical investments are outperforming the standard in emerging market indices. Is this still the case?
0: One of the latest editions of Moral Money Financial Times column was quoting latest research by Barclays and other industry giants into the growing importance of ESG, environmental and social governance policies, corporate responsibility. Barclays is starting a new ESG publication that argues COVID-19 will accelerate the trend towards ESG sustainable investments. It'll say it will go even further, creating a greater sense of urgency and responsibility towards everything from consumer behavior to climate change, supply chain practices, and the future of work and mobility, and potentially alter the nature of the investment process as a result. Sounds though everything is being thrown up in the air. Another sustainable investments tracker, True Value Labs and ESG Data Group have created a coronavirus ESG monitor. It tracks five topics and signals, social, labour, supply chain, response and the economy. The response signal captures information on companies shifting their operational activity to relevant products such as ventilators or vaccines. So, by the way, Kerry, we're certainly seeing a lot of that amongst our clients as well uh, at the EBRD. They've shifted their production to produce hand sanitizers, like the uh, Turkish perfumery company Mara, or to provide transportation services for medical staff, or indeed the use of household robotics to help advance research on COVID-19. I'm sure we're already working on a similar monitor for our regions, because the response uh, across our regions has clearly been overwhelming. Interesting that the, the emphasis on labour practices puts into spotlight uh, this gig economy, Equally, some bad examples of management, so we've seen some of those, and how a public perception can turn on a company in the light of them perhaps not treating their employees as well as they might do during the COVID-19. So there's a, a lot going on. It's going to be fascinating to see how and what impact all this will have on ethical perceptions, uh, evaluations of companies. Companies are really in the spotlight for this. And equally, it's raising a lot of questions about the sustainability, as I say, of the gig economy. You know whether well, forces can be protected.
2: Absolutely, Jonathan. You know, and and there's a company, obviously everyone knows Amazon, and they've gotten some negative press recently um, regarding how they've treated their workers. And, you know, when you think about it, I don't know about you, but I've been ordering a lot of Amazon packages. Uh, these boxes come to the door, and I really gen- genuinely want these these delivery um, people and these delivery drivers to be taken care of. And you, you want them not only to be taken care of because it's a human-to-human desire, but also because not only, you know, is it awful for them to come to work sick because you wouldn't want to come to work sick, but they could also be spreading um, this virus around. So there are these principles called the UN Principles for Responsible Investing, or the UNPRI. And these principles really work to understand the investment implications of environmental, social, and governance factors. So just last week, the UNPRI issued a new set of actions for investors to take regarding the COVID response. For example, action one says, Uh, engage companies that are failing in their crisis management. There's an action, which is action number three, that says investors should really look at reprioritizing the engagement on other topics. So I think this is actually a really positive thing to look at, you know, in COVID response world. So basically what we're talking about is, um, at least in respect to the UNPRI, is this call for investors to put responsibility before profits, or at least equal to profits. They even have advice for governments. When the public health emergency of COVID-19 starts to subside, government's support should be prioritized for companies, sectors, and business activities that help respond to crisis, such as the climate emergency and inequality, rather than those at risk exacerbating them. It really calls to me that investors can not only help the companies that are already doing good, but we can actually push the ones that aren't doing so well in the right direction. Um, and then the UNPRI CEO said something the other day that I thought really, um, you know, really struck a chord. She said that the the economy is there to support society, not the other way around. So I think as we go forward, this is something uh, really great to remember. But I really wonder, Jonathan, how the market will actually be changed by this crisis and what kinds of new products are going to be on the market and that the market will will demand. And, you know, equally, Is there going to be this whole wave of good washing, if you will? And really, I guess, how can we stop that?
0: Yeah, I think that's an interesting question, Kerry, not least that I'm sure we will see things changing as a result. They always do uh, out of a crisis. The question is whether at some stage there's also some slippage back to old ways that happens as well. Uh, And really, uh, those are the questions we're going to be looking at uh, in this edition of Pocket Dilemmas. It is the podcast, just to remind you, which explores the political and economic problems shaping our world. You can review us on iTunes, email us at dilemmas at ebrd.com. We're always very glad to hear from you. You can follow us on Twitter at ebrd. So our dilemma today is, what does COVID-19 mean for impact investing? Can we make investing for good? a new normal uh, to figure out all that and to answer those questions. We've got Alexia Latortu, the Managing Director of Corporate Strategy here at the EBRD, Stuart Tro, your Personal Finance Guide and Associate Director in our Treasury. So first of all, for both of you, let's let's get some headlines, some top lines as to how you see this and whether investing for good will become a new normal.
3: Thanks so much, Jonathan. It's great to be on this podcast with you and Terry and Stuart. So there's something about crises, it's that they really test, um, they're the ultimate test of ideas, of concepts, and of trends. And I think to your question, um, it is fairly clear to me that the trend that was already existing of impact investing and the market for impact investing growing, we can debate the numbers, but I think the trend of growth was there, will, I think, be accentuated by COVID for some of the reasons that you and Carrie have already mentioned that we have an exposure of what we consider good companies, companies that are acting in the ways we would hope they would act during the crises, and perhaps less good companies. And so thinking about investments and what kinds of investments we want to make, I think is higher on people's minds. Um, It was already there, but the crisis has exposed the fault lines. Of poor behavior, but also of good behavior, and it was fascinating to me to see right before the lockdown here in London that some companies had signs saying we're closed because of COVID nineteen. Some of them also had signs saying but we're still paying our workers, or we you know, and, and so it was really part of a very short <laughs> notice posted on a window that the company felt compelled to tell the public about how they were taking care of of their workers. So I think the potential for a new normal and for acceleration of an existing trend is absolutely there, particularly with respect to the S, particular attention on social issues. And you touched on this in terms of the gig economy and 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 looking at label practice, labor practices uh, a bit more carefully, I think will actually be absolutely heightened. E, environmental issues, was already strong. I think the S will be stronger specifically because of COVID. But some of the pre-existing challenges to actually delivering on the aspirations of impact investing will also remain. And so we will have to continue work to accelerate work on the obstacles and i hope we can talk more about that
0: yes i mean that's very interesting Alexia, and i definitely want to come back to the s yes, because i've been obsessed personally for quite a long time about the social license to operate that companies have this new idea that's really been around now you know for a year or so companies have been talking very openly about it's not just their economic license to operate but their social license to operate and uh, that'd be interesting to look at through this through this lens we'll come back to that stuart how do you see things
1: hello there Um, well i agree with everything alexia said there just a couple of points i I would like to add though Um, it seems that sort of institutions and institutional investors are sort of very keen and they've sort of got regulators and rating agencies to an extent sort of placing far more emphasis on esg engagement But it's interesting when you look, drill down to individual investors, when there's an ethical option, say, within retirement plans and stuff like that, generally the take up's not as much as you'd imagine. You know, there are two forces going through here. It's not just the fact that uh, people don't care about ESG factors, because quite clearly they do. But it does seem that the inertia around default options in investment actually sort of is stronger than the desire to be green, if you like. So, you know, maybe one way of addressing that is to include more ESG awareness within the default options for retail investors, if you like. So to some extent, you could almost say that industry and corporations are running ahead of the general public on that. It seems a little bit counterintuitive, but in terms of practicalities, in terms of getting money into ESG and socially responsible investments, institutions are, are actually making some of the running on this
0: are you seeing already Stuart then structural changes in the market
1: oh yeah no no they, there is definitely an appetite and a desire for ESG related sort of uh, credit and you know which is which is our particular area and you know we're, we're seeing ESG and social um, governance indices being constructed so that institutional investors have got something to follow, if you like, so they kind of almost a pre-selected list Mm -hmm. of um, companies that uh, meet some criteria in that regard, but I mean, I'm sure we'll get onto it later, the sort of actually measuring ESG engagement is a is a nightmare, <laughs> and you know, I mean, very, very, from various different angles. You know, angles as an investor, angles as an issuer, and you know, just in terms of general corporate governance, what you know, what is good behavior?
2: Yeah, measurement is definitely a, a huge barrier for sure, um, and it's something actually we've been talking about for for quite a while. But this is you know quite a growing market. So at the end of last year, the Global Sustainable Investment Alliance said that socially responsible investments grew by thirty four percent to $30.7 trillion over the past two years. This was lifted by the Japanese pension funds, retail investors everywhere, as well as a broad growing concern about climate change. So Europe remains actually the biggest region for sustainable investors with about $14 devoted to these strategies. So can we expect a much bigger chunk of the market now transitioning to responsible investments uh, now now because of COVID? Alexia, how do you see things?
3: I think we need to unpack your question a little bit, Carrie. I mean, I think what is the market? And I think that's one of the challenges with impact investing is that it's a big tent. And that's great because we like big tent, but it's also a very diverse tent, right? and if we just boil it down to the fundamentals about what do we mean by impact investing it really is about investing with the intent and i underscore the word intent um, to generate you know social or environmental impacts alongside financial returns and there's a spectrum of different players in this market Uh, Some of them are just traditional investors where they just look at financial returns. Others are players that look at financial returns, but also consider ESG from a responsibility perspective and frankly, from a bit of a do no harm perspective, right? So the traditional negative screens for tobacco, alcohol, there's a group that's a bit more proactive in terms of really trying to drive and create opportunities for sustainable investments. So there's a more proactive stance still with financial returns and then you continue to perhaps impact first groups that are willing perhaps to accept some um, um, lower risk adjusted returns to get this impact and you have philanthropy. So it's a really broad tent. And if I exclude the philanthropy um, extreme of that spectrum, um, then I think we also need to be clear that financial returns remain absolutely something that these investors must see. And, and there's also a fallacy, which I think institutions like EBRD and podcasts like these can help with. There's a bit of a fallacy about whether there is a trade-off between social returns and financial returns. And Stuart maybe can talk about this, but the research I have seen that says that the, there is actually not a trade-off in the long term. So investors that are really in it for the long term that are patient investors, they don't really see, as far as I understand, trade-offs between social and financial returns. But not everybody understands this i think there is potential to see the market grow as you said it's quite concentrated europe australia trying to push more of this investment into emerging markets i think that's one of the things that we need to work on um, And in particular some of the countries of operation um in the ebrd regions and i think we need to do more work to really understand why the sort of left side of the spectrum the, the the sort of more commercial investors, what they can do, really deliver what they can do to get more engaged in this space, get their financial returns, but also deliver environmental and social impacts. And I think there's a bit more work to do uh, on that end of the, of the market.
2: You're, you're exactly right. It's, it's not fair to lump it all into one bullet. Um, and the fallacy between the trade-offs and this double bottom line, I think is also really important to, um, to, to highlight. So thank you. Stuart, do you have any reactions to, to what Alexia just laid out?
1: Yeah, yeah, because I mean, basically, one of the issues is is transparency, because then if you get full transparency, you can see when a, a company is genuinely doing good rather than just sort of playing to the crowd and stuff like that, so, and, and in a environment where you have got transparency and you can see absolutely what a company is up to both socially and from an environmental perspective, then the the benefits of being a good citizen will flow through to the bottom line. Whereas if you've got a situation where it's easy to hide and obfuscate and all the rest of it, then you won't necessarily see the good players reap the benefits that perhaps they should do. So, so, you know, I mean, it sort of reminds me very much of the sort of the discussion in behavioural finance and nudges and stuff like that. The nudges work best when people actually understand what's going on and can see for themselves who's being good and who's being bad.
0: It's an interesting point, though, isn't it, Stuart? You know, I've I've been thinking a bit about this and that, you know, these are all very good concepts trying to push people into into this direction. But I wonder how all that thought gets bandwidth at the moment, because we're seeing such major shifts in the financial markets. There's so much going on, you know, the massive bond selling by governments to raise money. You know, all the money that's being shelled out to keep economies in effect in a coma so that eventually when we come out of this, we'll be able to re-emerge with some sort of economy. There's a lot going on in the financial sector. And it's hard for, for this to be a focus right now.
1: Obviously, everybody wants to know whether we've seen the worst in the financial markets, but uh, we've been so anaesthetized by all these sort of non-transparent interventions from central banks, for example. And whilst it's absolutely necessary to sort of protect jobs and, and protect life. It does leave you in a very confused situation that you can't actually see very easily what's good value and what's not good value. And a large part of that boils down to pure supply and demand. You know, one of the reasons, for example, why uh, ESG assets have performed so strongly historically is because there's been a, a relative lack of supply of them compared to all the people busy putting constructing Bond indices to track the performance of ESG, so that's created a, a little bit of a squeeze. So it's so I'm always a little bit cautious to to sort of suggest that people have been rewarded for being green because sometimes it comes down to basic sort of inefficiencies in in, in the financial market. Yeah, Alexia yes. Go Sorry, on. if I
3: can jump in. So I think uh, Stuart's caution is right, but let me add a <laughs> bit of optimism as well here. Because I think we've seen a quite massive shift and let's stay with the climate the, the e for for a moment with climate change We have seen over the past few years climate climate change risks absolutely become Mainstream on the agenda of many central banks and many finance ministers and not seen as something other or Or cute or apart but actually part of their core jobs and I think the very example right here in the UK Of the fact that the former governor of the Central Bank of England, former chairperson of the financial stability board, has been named by the Prime Minister of the UK as a financial advisor for COP26. So I think it shows that uh, the financial industry understands that it cannot fulfill its its core functions without absolutely integrating Uh, climate issues and climate risk
2: issues in the mainstream framework. That gives me some hope. So Lexi, it sounds like then there's a massive chance to change things around. You know, you have the, the climate change issue, but then you also have, you know, is a pandemic a new climate change of sorts that it'll really kind of get the market and people around investing in things um, that are that are key you know around green and around social. and how do you think we could actually do this policy wise or other?
3: So I think there are certain things that are linked to an opportunity presented bizarrely as it may seem by COVID, and then just some fundamentals that needed to happen anyway and need to continue. Perhaps the most uh, for me, the most compelling opportunity that COVID19 itself uh, presents in this respect is that we know, that there are huge financial packages being approved, um, um, particularly in the richer countries, um, for the COVID response. And so, is there a way that, from a policy perspective, we can link these massive inflows of finance into some of into some countries to being spent in a way that reinforces certain uh, outcomes that we want to see, particularly in the green space? Is there a way to tilt to green? some of the fiscal stimulus that um, is is, is being provided to countries. Um, So I think that's actually a very specific opportunity given the huge flows of money that um, we're seeing. And then I think the the other part of the answer for me are things that we already knew needed to be on the agenda and we just need to double down and deliver on them. And I think Stuart, your point about transparency perhaps is the most important point Um, because if we're really going to be credible in growing um, um, this this impact investing market, we need to be able to uh, answer the question, when is impact achieved, um, in a very clear way. And we need to have standards across all these different categories um, that Stuart also was talking about, uh, different kinds of, of, of asset classes from the, if you look at development finance institutions, if you look at private equity, if you look at pension firms, right now we have a very fragmented set of standards. So a serious investor might look at this and I wouldn't blame them for walking away and saying, this is chaotic, I don't get this. Um, And so we need to accelerate work on a common framework, a common standard for actually being able to, in clear, concise and consistent ways, report back on impact achieved. For me, that's one of the top priorities
0: it's an interesting thought as well alexa you know i mentioned it earlier that i've seen sort of more and more companies in the past year or so talking about their social license to operate uh and and by that you know what i what i think they mean is that it's not good enough just to be there as a company to make money that in order to get public backing which is important for any company to make money you've also got to be seen to be interested in social issues you know and we've seen companies Obviously, for many years, taking a moral lead on issues like the environment and, you know, LGBT issues. Um, so I wonder whether these are the same companies that have already woken up to the social license to operate uh, that might be the ones to watch in terms of, of going further now in, in this crisis. I don't know what you think about that, Alexia. Is Alexia?
3: Yeah, So maybe quickly. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think I think this this terminology I hadn't heard it before, uh, Jonathan of social license to operate, is quite compelling. And again. It's linked to having a long-term view of, your, of the relationship that you have with your consumers as a company, the relationship you have, frankly, with the government and the national authorities. So if you look at the luxury brands that instead of producing uh, per- colognes and perfumes are producing hand sanitizer, and instead of producing you know, the latest fashion are producing face masks, they're buying, and I don't mean to be cynical by using that word, but they're buying a social capital um, with respect to uh, the relationship they have with their customers, their, their, their consumers, but also um, the countries in which they're domiciled. And I think that's real. The key will be for that kind of behavior uh, to be sustained <laughs> um, and demonstrate and, and, and sustained in a, in a, in a verifiable way um, after, after the crisis. And that goes back to your point about um, uh, human beings as wonderful as we are and uh, sometimes having short memories.
0: Yes, we often do. You know that's why I wonder whether at some stage we'll switch back. Stuart, social licences to operate companies driving change.
1: Um. Yeah, I think to a, to an extent that that is you know it's definitely a a theme, but it's 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 a bit more nuanced than that as well because I mean several large U.S. multinationals have. Uh, been coming out with all sorts of stances on on various socially aware issues yeah. but I guess the, the question you want to ask yourself is are they trying to distance themselves from perhaps some of the more controversial elements of US government policy as much as as actually engaging socially so you know I mean it's it, you feel a bit better being a bit cynical about it and I'm not totally cynical about it because I have been quite encouraged by the stuff that's coming through but a lot of it is trying to position themselves for a longer term when they see perhaps things like the uh, a stance on the paris accords and stuff like that exxon mobil was quite vocal in criticizing the uh, the the stepping back from uh, the paris climate accords and then you've got sort of uh apple Alphabet and Facebook were, were all quite uh, vocal when the bans on the seven predominantly Muslim countries air travel was uh, was introduced. And, and, you know, and as you mentioned yourself, Jonathan, th- things like L- LGBT plus and um, uh, transgender issues as well. You know, a lot of the major corporations, Microsoft, again, sort of Alphabet and Coca-Cola, they've all been saying sort of, things beyond what they needed to say just to be, um, I don't know, just to toe the line. They they were actually putting themselves out there to a degree. So part of it is wanting to distance themselves from sort of more controversial areas. But part of it is an awareness of this social license you were talking about.
0: Yeah, just actually before Kerry asks the next question, just might be worth defining, by the way, uh, a social license to operate. And just while you were talking... I thought, I wonder if there's a dictionary definition yet. There is a definition now of this relatively new concept. A social license to operate, SLO, refers to the level of acceptance or approval by employees, local communities, and all stakeholders of organizations and their operations. It's based on the idea that institutions and companies need not only regulatory permission, but also social permission to conduct their business. So there you are, there's a definition. Kerry.
2: Super interesting. You know, and I, I am an optimist, like most of us on this call, but I still, I still really worry about the, the good washing and the green washing. Um, you know, you hear about these examples of companies doing well, but then spending X multiples to then advertise that they're doing well, you know, or doing good. And so it's, you know, part of me is, is really wondering about the incentive for them. Are they, do they really actually want to do good or do they really just want to attract the millennials for example, who actually have a lot of funds to invest um, in order to invest their invest their money because they know the, that the millennials. I'm very biased. I'm in that generation that we want to invest in things that are aligned with um, with our personal priorities. So, Alexia, how would we tackle this? Um, you know, this greenwashing and this goodwashing.
3: This is a really important question that you ask, Carrie, because this is not about good words. Serious impact investing field so to speak, is not about good words. It really needs to be uh, delivering, uh, depending on where it is on the spectrum that I I, I described earlier, on at least the do no harm. And if it's saying that it's doing more than that, but actually delivering on positive social outcomes, it must be able, in a rational, efficient way, it must be able to measure and communicate with transparency those outcomes. And by the way, a trend that also I think is being accentuated, by COVID is technology and maybe there are ways to leverage actually some t- technologies to be able to make that kind of monitoring and reporting um, A bit more efficient and, and 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 real time And so I think we need to talk about both the role of policy and regulation This may not be popular, but what is the role of policy and regulation? Um, in terms of countering the risk of good washing or greenwashing? so having clear standards if you're going to be labeling yourself as an impact fund for example, um, as well as voluntary efforts. So I think there's space for, po- for regulation and for policy and there's space for voluntary efforts. So, For example, the task force on climate re- related uh, financial disclosure is voluntary. But, you know, you talk about behavioral um, economics and nudges earlier, Stuart. But I think it, it's voluntary. But if you look at the, the strength of the task force and the kinds of people who are on it, it does create, uh, at one point, I think the idea is that it would create a reputation risk <laughs> to a company if it doesn't participate. So it's voluntary, but there are costs to not participating. So I think finding the right balance, and I would be very curious for others' views on this, on this podcast around this issue of the balance between the voluntary. And, and and the regulation. And obviously the European Union has also been quite strong um, with regards to the EU taxonomy, particularly around uh, uh, climate change adaptation and climate change mitigation. I think the S, which we mentioned is perhaps getting a greater spotlight now with COVID-19, is actually h- harder in some ways than the E because norms in different countries and different cultures around the S also differ. Um, and so when some of the companies went you know, very far out in terms of the comments they made on some of the social issues, they were sometimes celebrated and applauded, but sometimes they also said, that's not your role as a company in the society to try and change cultural norms. So I think S is a, a particularly tricky place, especially when it comes to, to um, um, some of the regulatory issues as well.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point, and the S, of course, you know, comes back to companies saying it is our role. That's why we need this social permission to operate. You know, it's a, it's a very interesting concept from that point of view as well. Um, let me remind you, you're listening to Pocket Dilemmas, the podcast which explores. The political and economic problems which are shaping our world. You can review us on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. Email us uh, at dilemmas at ebrd.com. Follow us on Twitter at ebrd. Our dilemma today is what does COVID 19 mean for impact investing? And uh, can we make investment for good a new normal? Uh, we're all, by the way, in our separate uh, homes uh, uh, speaking to you. We are social distancing here. We're not in our normal studio. Uh, that accounts for the different sound qualities. Uh, But it's all in a good cause. Um, Let's have a look now at at another aspect of this. What uh, do you think, Alexia, will be the biggest challenge to change? The
3: biggest. So, I mean, I'm sorry to be a bit repetitive, Jonathan, but I think the the definition of impact, the lack of standards, the fragmentation of the reporting remains (coughs) pre-COVID, but remains post-COVID a major challenge. Um, I think the second one, that challenge that I perhaps will share now, is indeed the challenge around some of the uh, labor uh, the labor protection issues, um, the gig economy that is both saving many of us during the crisis, right? Um, but on the other hand, we have seen, and I think, Carrie, you were alluding to this earlier, how vulnerable these celebrated workers are. And the flexibility of the gig economy and the ability for people to be entrepreneurs and 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 to enter markets very flexibly and quickly and 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 to still be functioning today even as parts of the economy shuts down in so many countries We celebrate that and yet we see the vulnerability of of, of the veneered, you know uh, uh, uh gig economy I think finding the right protections and the right balance to allow the free market uh, aspect of the, of the gig economy that we love so much and the flexible market entry of the gig economy that we love so much with the fundamental protections and not saying you're on your own. You're, you're not part of the organized labor market. You're on your own. I think that's not
2: acceptable
0: post-COVID. That's an interesting point, and actually, uh, Kerry, I think you've got a quote, haven't you, from Caroline Lucas, the Green Party MP. She's been talking about the gig economy.
2: Yeah, so Caroline Lucas, um, she said an interesting thing about the changes in the labor market. She said, the coronavirus is changing us as a society, but it's also revealing who we can truly be. We are seeing people's roles and jobs in a fresh new way. People who yesterday were, quote unquote, unskilled are now essential workers, and rightly so. Um, So, Lexia, you know, we'll see this structural change in a way that the the labor market um, adjusts to this crisis. And also, you know, she's she's implying and it looks like you're agreeing that the value of employee well-being will actually be um, something that maybe isn't just buried in marketing material or a a new hire packet, but it might actually be something that we address going forward that every company will address or at least every employer will address. Do you agree? So I agree on the on the the need to get there and despite
3: my inner optimism however i think there will be real hurdles i think countries that have a very strong tradition of sort of social democracy you know and already have very strong social safety nets that are in place frankly that already apply to gig economy workers i think that will be much easier but there are many economies including very large um, developed economies that frankly have incredibly thin social safety nets and and part of the culture of economics in some of these countries is very much You as an individual chart your course and you succeed or fail by the Virtue of your labor and your strength and your you know work ethic and I think in those countries um really delivering on the words that you just read. I'm afraid on the other side of the crisis um, Could could fade quite quickly Unless you have constituents in these countries that get organized and really keep the alarm bell ringing, even in terms of of more calm.
0: I think there's an interesting point there as well, Alexia, maybe Stuart, you want to comment on that. You know, you've got, when you get through this crisis, uh, you may well still be in the worst recession for decades, possibly even centuries, depending on whose view you take. Uh, and that will be hard to keep some of these social issues in focus, uh, won't it, Stuart, when, when companies are fighting for survival?
1: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I think I think, you know, one of the the problems is at the end of the day, the gig economy does tend to be for low and unskilled workers. And, they, you know, economically, they've got no, um, I guess, Warren Buffett would refer to it as they've got no economic moat to protect their status so it's it's beholden on the authorities and the regulators to provide that protection so so to an extent you know as Alexia was suggesting in you know countries with a more social democratic sort of uh, ethos they've they kind of fought back against sort of long-term contracting and they tried to uh, regularize the employment to say uber drivers that, and the like to provide them with some support. And, you know, we've seen the differences emerge with COVID as well, in as much that the issues you're getting are, it's much easier to lock down a society where people are regularly employed than where they're part of the gig economy. And, you know, with the best will in the world, you're going to, people are going to fall through the cracks if if there's too much emphasis on the freedom of the gig economy. Uh, But at the same time, people like it people like the flexibility of it um you look at freelancing websites as well so you're not just talking about uber drivers and all the rest of it you know there are tons of people offering to do you know presentations or nice little sort of video jingles for you and it really doesn't cost very much but they like the flexibility of being able to do that and you, it, it's really a trade-off you know I mean, you, you're looking at to, to sort of look at the current crisis in particular, the economic damage will be greater because of the gig economy leaves a lot of gaps and what have you. But actually having the flexibility to sort of gig economy recover, well, you know, you don't want to lock things down too much because you remove the vital element of sort of uh, creative destruction that makes capitalism work.
0: Yes, employment's been going out of fashion a little bit, hasn't it? It's probably a topic we should do on another podcast and self-employment was very much... coming into its own and especially in more advanced economies it'll be interesting to see how that survives the crisis but that's probably a topic we should look at on on another day on this podcast. I think it's time we should start concluding really so our dilemma has been what what does COVID-19 mean for impact investing can we make investing for good a new normal and maybe I should uh, as we draw to a close you know Alexia why don't we start with you what do you think now are the main action points of what we can and must do to ensure this this agenda goes forward? What's the immediate actions you think?
3: So I love the way you framed your question, the immediate actions, because I think that's the secret. If we want COVID-19 to have accelerated the move towards impact investing, the work needs to start now, not when we're through the crisis. Um, Because as we've all said on this podcast, when we're through the crisis, um, old behaviors come through. So I think even though it's a busy time with lots of other urgent priorities, there those people who are adamant that impact investing um, um, uh, is is, is an important area, um, is, is, is where we need to move more and more of the investment, needs to be today, in the midst of all the chaos, still continuing to do work on the frameworks for reporting and trying to have one standard, probably using. The Sustainable Development Goals as the core building block still needs to be doing education to investors about emerging mar- emerging markets and trying to help investors understand the real risks and opportunities, not just the perception of risks in the emerging markets. Folks who work on social issues need to try and use this moment today to articulate clearly how we could unpack some of the core tenets of the S and how we could create uh, clear um, frameworks uh, that could be incorporated in reporting around the S as well. So the plea that I would have is that these actions are accelerated today, even as we're still, unfortunately, in the midst of the pandemic. Because if we do that, the new normal has a bit of a chance of being better than
0: the pre covid normal. Stuart what do you think is it carpe diem? season today?
1: Um yeah to an extent i think what what the, the whole dilemma with the esg though is the the quantifiable uh you know over the subjective so for example you know one of the things that people have been talking about in in recent days has been things like the world bank's pandemic bond which still hasn't triggered <laughs> despite the fact we've had a pandemic that is is threatening to sort of collapse growth by up to 30% in a single quarter so clearly we've got to get the, the architecture right and that that's beholden on the regulators you know it, it, with the best will in the world you, you if you want to be socially responsible you have to operate within a framework and that framework needs to be right and you know leading us to You know, again, behavioural finance, they will talk about choice architecture and you've got to ask the right questions. You've got, got to make it easy for people to do the right thing. But having said that, I wouldn't want to get too hung up on the quantifiable because it by its nature, it's evolving. And what is socially responsible today might be different a couple of years down the track, you know, because, what you know, one of the memes people have been popping around is a picture of a sort of uh, a lazy slob lying on a sofa. And he was, you know, the unshaven, disheveled and sort of a, a waste of space in 2019. But in 2020, he's the socially responsible adult in, in the rooms. So <laughs> perce- perce- perceptions of what is socially responsible have got to have some flexibility in it to allow them to evolve. So we're not stuck with five-year-old standards that are no longer applicable in the modern world.
2: Thanks, Stuart and Alexei, Those were really great points. So, Jonathan, what do you think? You know, after this crisis is over, uh, do you think that um, we'll have, you know, a better moral market? And and what are your what are your conclusions?
0: So I, I sort of come back, I think, Kerry, to the point about uh, social permission to operate, social license to operate. I think for the medium term, people will remember who were the companies who did good during this crisis, who were the companies who looked after their workers, looked after their communities, thought about their wider stakeholders, um, thought about doing things that were, in a broad sense, good. Um, So from that point of view, you know, I do think there is room in the medium term for these sort of companies to advance this agenda, to think about social impact investing, Uh, advancing good decision-making. I'm a bit, I think, with Alexia as well, which is my experience of many, many crises going back many, many decades, is that actually there's a generational turn here. That uh, in the first few years, things change, you know, as Alexia pointed out, the time for change is now. Um, But you get to a point, you know, it takes about a a, a small generation. Uh, 10 years is a long time and people's memories recede. Uh, and old behaviours come back. Uh, mistakes are repeated, either in old ways or new ways, uh, and, and therefore things don't advance so much towards the end of the cycle. So I think the time is now. I think companies that have discovered that social permission to operate will certainly, in my mind, you know, want to exploit that because they recognise there's a marketplace for it, uh, and that will change. Um, but the longer it goes on between crises. The more memories will fade, and the more some of the momentum may well be lost.
2: I love the uh, the social permission to operate. I think I'm going to try to use that a few times in a sentence in a sentence this week. <laughs> I think it's excellent. Um, you know, I I I agree. I, I think that responsible investing is here to stay. I, I don't think there's a question about that. I still remain worried about impact washing, be it good washing or green washing. This still really concerns me. But you know, is transparency key? Yes, sounds like it, maybe along with frameworks um, from our conversation today. But, um, you know, governments, task forces like the one Alexia mentioned earlier, which is uh, the the TCFD, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, and things like the EU taxonomy are going to be really significant in defining what is and what is not sustainable finance. So I'm hoping that this is going to be another big driver for impact investing. You know, but now more than ever, the world requires just the power of scalable finance to address these global, these global problems. Yes, it's COVID-19 today. It's climate change and inequality today and tomorrow. Um, but the pandemic has really highlighted our interconnectedness, not only for how it spreads, but also how we fight it. And I just want to give a special thanks to those gig workers. Without you, I would have starved. I wouldn't have the flowers. I, I really appreciate what you do. I think you are, um, I think you are key workers. and. We'll keep fighting here, here, the good here.
0: fight. You're here. here. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think we can all unite around that, and uh, you know, and I think as, as critical workers, you know, uh, they certainly become critical to what is currently the, the new normal. A uh, big thank you to Alexia Big thank you to Stuart. Uh, see you again soon. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by the EBRD. We'll be back soon with a new episode. In the meantime, send us your feedback, suggestions and ideas on dilemmas at ebrd.com. And remember, reviewing and rating us helps others to find
1: us. Until next time.